From the literary world, Robert Frost's poem, I think that many of us are familiar with, I think brings us to that, that crossroads, at least in the literary world, where he said two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one, he said, and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the, the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, it leaves no step, had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for the other day, yet knowing how way leads on to lay, way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. The road less traveled by. That poem is often in my mind because I I think when you look at the scripture and when you examine the scripture, man in a very similar way is on a spiritual road. One way leads to life, and the other way leads to death. One leads to heaven, and the other leads to hell. In fact, from the biblical world, which is the world of authority, Jesus said to us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it, and how true that is. And the question that I pose to you this morning for each of you just individually, and for those whom you share the gospel with, what road are you on? I mean, the Scripture is absolutely blunt that there are only two roads. There's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction, a way that leads to heaven and then another one that leads to hell. And emphatically, what the Scriptures teach is that what you choose is going to make all the difference. Now, as you take your Bible and open it to John chapter 3, We've been stating here in these last weeks that the purpose of our Lord's coming divides all of mankind into just two groups, believers and unbelievers. And as we look at this section of Scripture, the thing that comes out to us is that you must choose. You must make a choice. You remember, as we said weeks ago, that as we look to John chapter 3, in chapter 3, 1 through 10, remember the emphasis was on the sovereignty of God in the new birth. He must bring about the new birth. It is a sovereign work of God in the Holy Spirit and, and upon the believer's life. There's no question we saw His sovereignty. But as soon as we hit 3.11 and all the way down through 21, the key word there is believing. Believing. And he keeps saying you must believe or you do not believe or you must 
believe in him. And so when you look at 3, 1 through 21, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are brought together. In fact, this dual truth runs parallel throughout Scripture, and it will now show itself by describing the choices that lie before the entire world regarding the person of Christ. Now remember, in this context, he has speaking to Nicodemus. You remember he came to him by night. He came to him as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, and he was utterly confused. Do you remember after Jesus told him he needed the new birth, Nicodemus said to him in chapter 3, verse 9, how can these things be? Utterly confused. To which Jesus said in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? How can you be so learned in the scriptures and even the Old Testament and not understand the power of the new birth? Of course, referring back to Ezekiel 36. Then Jesus said to him in verse 11, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and we bear witness what we have seen. And then very clearly he said in verse 11, but you do not receive our testimony. It's very straightforward with Nicodemus. You have not received our testimony. Jesus went on, look at verse 12, if I told you earthly things, and then Jesus said, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But it says it very clearly there that he did not believe in verse 12, which launched us into that wonderful section on John 3, 14 through 16, on the graciousness of God. And we begin to walk through those points on the source of salvation. It was God so loved the world. Then secondly, we looked at the scope of salvation. We namely said that he loves the entire world. And we showed biblically and exegetically the different facets of love. And we focused there on whoever believes and the call that would go out to whoever would believe in him. Then we looked at the sacrifice of salvation that he gave his only son And then finally, a couple weeks back, we looked at the security of salvation, that you shall not perish, but have eternal life. So as we come into the text today, in 317 through 18, our Lord goes on to further explain the gracious act of God giving his only begotten son to the world. Would you look at the text with me and let me read 17 through 21. And we'll just look at 17 and 18 today and then 19 through 21 next week. It says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And we'll focus our attention on 17 and 18. And if you're taking notes, I just want to put it in this category that John here, and I believe it's, it's Christ speaking, 
There are some people who believe that it's John the Apostle speaking. It's hard to tell in the Greek where one sentence finish and where another one begins, where Jesus' words start, where they finish, and where John adds his comment. But nevertheless, it's the Word of God. But what he does here is he provides two exhortations that lead to the greatest decision you will ever make in this life. Two exhortations that lead to the greatest decision you will ever make in your life. And so I want to look first at the purpose of our Lord's coming in verse 17, and then the results of our Lord's coming in verse 18. It's not hard to grasp it. First the purpose of His coming, then the results. And with each of those two exhortations, there's a negative and then a positive statement, at least in the first exhortation. And then in the second exhortation on the result, there's a positive statement and then actually a negative statement. But here's the first exhortation, the purpose of our Lord's coming, okay? The purpose of our Lord's coming. It's stated negatively. Look at the text again in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Very clear profound statement that he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Here is the explanation back in verse 16 of God sending his only begotten son into the world. And here the primary reason or purpose for Christ's coming was not to condemn negatively, but positively it was to save. So, beloved, we learn something about God's own heart here. Out of his own infinite goodness, his own infinite mercy and grace, he sent his only son not to condemn, but to save. When you look at that little phrase there, let me just take off on it just for a moment. You see it there in verse 17, that God did not send his son into the world. That is a phrase that's used all over the New Testament. Namely, that God Almighty sent His Son into the world. In fact, look over at John chapter 4. Let me just show you a few features here. In John chapter 4, I'll just touch on them. And it's all over. We can't even touch on all of them. But Jesus said to them, John 4 verse 34. You've seen this before. My food is to do... The will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. All through the New Testament, Jesus was very conscious that the reason that he was sent is that he was sent here in this passage to do his will, but God Almighty sent him. Look over at John chapter 5 in verse 23. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And Jesus said in 523, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. It's very, very conscious, if you will, that the Father had sent Him. If you will, look at the next verse in chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. So here you have to honor him because he was sent from God in 23. 
And here Jesus says you've got to believe him, believe God who sent me. And if you believe God who sent me, you have eternal life. Look down at chapter 5 in verse 30. Jesus said there, I could do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It is all over the New Testament. In fact, this is a truth that reigns to us this morning at Grace Church of the Valley, that the Father has sent his Son. Look down at chapter 5 in verse 36. Jesus said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Very, very conscience statements all over the Scripture. Just look into the next chapter, in chapter 6, in verse 29. It says there, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him... Christ, right? You believe in Him whom He has sent. All over. Look at chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Glance down at chapter 6, verse 57. As the living Father has sent me. And you'll have this in many other places in John's gospel. But if you will, go back to John chapter 3 and look at it again in its context. Here, the Father, it says, did not send me. He puts it in a, a negative statement. Not negative, Just I just mean a negative. He did not send his Son into the world, watch this, to condemn the world. I find that fascinating. He did not send them to judge the world or condemn the world. The Greek word is krino. And there's no doubt, as I presume, that Nicodemus is still in that conversation. He probably was fashioning in his mind that the Messiah would crush, that the Messiah would rule, that the Messiah would overthrow Rome, that he would judge the world and judge the Gentiles. But clearly here, you're reading it and seeing it with your own eyes. The mission of Christ is negatively stated that he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to what? Save the world. And there is the positive statement. In fact, look at the exact words in verse 18. It's, or excuse me, 17. He came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's God's heart. I mean, Jesus would say to us in Luke 15, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 to the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. To which Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, be very clear, beloved, that God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. 
That is why he came. That is the purpose of his coming. Jesus said in Luke 5.31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. That's why he came. He came to save. In fact, he said in Luke chapter 19, after Zacchaeus was converted, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is, what? Lost. That's why he's come. Look back at the text, though, just for a moment. It says here in verse 17 that the world might be saved, and, and you'll note that it's, it's directed somewhere, that the world might be saved through him. It's through Christ. And of course, when you go back to verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So you would, that the world would be saved, but salvation comes through Him, through the Son of Man. Look at verse 15. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His own only Son but whoever believes in him should not perish. So here, beloved, the purpose of his coming was not to condemn, but to save. It was to seek lost sinners. Jesus even said this in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. This is very, very clear. The purpose of his coming is he came not to judge, not to condemn, but to save. However, you have statements like this. Have you ever wondered about this in the Bible? Look over at chapter 5 in verse 22. Clearly he came to save, but he did say this, that the Father in 522 judges no one, but has given all judgment to his Son. He gave all judgment to his son. So he does judge. He didn't come to judge. He came to save, but he's given all judgment to his son. Look at 527. Jesus will say there, I can do nothing on my own, he says there in 527. As I hear, I judge. And he said, my judgment is just. And so he judges. Glance down in your Bible at 530. He said it again. I could do nothing on my own will. Or that was 530. He says, but my judgment is just. Turn over to chapter 9 just for a moment. I mean, how do you reconcile that he came not to condemn but to save? But in John chapter 9, in verse 39, it says there, Jesus said, for judgment, amazing statement, I came into the world. So on the one hand, God didn't send his son to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save it. But here he says in John 9, 39, for judgment, I came into the world. In fact, the apostles writing in Acts 10 said, speaking of Jesus, this is the one who was appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. In other words, the scripture tells us this morning, I don't care what people say, He's the judge, and he's going to judge the living and the dead, and he's the one that got got appointed to do that. 
In fact, it says, does the writer in Acts 17.31, that he has fixed a day in, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That man, of course, is the man, Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you, how do you begin to reconcile these seemingly contradictory statements? Okay? On the one hand, he came not to judge but to save, but on the other hand, for judgment I came into this world. Well, let me say that the purpose of his coming was clearly to save. That's what John 3.17 says. However, those who resist his grace offered in Christ will find him to be a judge. And beloved, I would say it this way, the consequence of not believing that God sent his son as savior is to reject him and to be judged. To say it another way, the purpose of his coming was to redeem man. But for those who scorn his coming, judgment is the inevitable result. And how you fare in this life depends on your response, or in the next life, depends on your response to him in this life. So judgment is a consequence But it is not the purpose of his coming. He clearly came to save. And so that's the purpose of his coming. But secondly, and here's the second exhortation, is the results of his coming. The results of his coming. Look back to John chapter 3 and verse 18. It says there, he just puts the results in this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here is the result of his coming. In fact, quite frankly, and maybe rather simply, I would say, that the results of humanity are broken into two groups of people. Jesus states this positively, then he states it negatively. Look what he says positively first in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Literally, in the language, the one believing in him, meaning that it's ongoing, it's never a decision that you make. It's something that's ongoing. The ideal is the one believing, the one continuing to believe in him, the one continually abiding in him, here's the promise, is not condemned. In other words, the sentence of condemnation will never be read against you. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. It is a great statement. Whoever believes in him, I say that positively, is not condemned. In fact, believing here is more than just an intellectual assent to the gospel. It includes trust. It includes commitment to Christ as Savior and Lord. But you're not condemned. Look over at John chapter 3 in verse 36. Whoever, here's the positive statement, believes in the Son has eternal life. It is a grand promise. If you're here this morning, you've placed your faith in Christ, you are not condemned. The sentence of condemnation will never come to you. Look again over at chapter 5, that grand statement, one of my favorite scriptures in all of 
the word of God. And again, grand in, in the sense of the assurance that it gives to us. Truly, truly, in 524, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. What a great statement. But has passed from death to what? Life. If you're here this morning as you come to the Lord's table, you're not condemned. Meaning that he sees you right now through the perfect righteousness of Christ. His judgment is already passed in his son where his wrath was poured out on the cross. And by your union with him, you sit here not condemned and you will never be condemned. This is the greatest truth in all of the world. It is better than any Christmas gift that you received, though I don't want to be Scrooge, right? I mean, to have all your sins forgiven and the statement of condemnation removed from you because of what Christ has done is one of the greatest uh, privileges in all of the world. In fact, Paul, you know this well in Romans 8.1, said there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what's amazing is that some of you are in Christ, but you don't rest in that. And I want to just not skip over that. I want you to rest in that. Because you're looking back and thinking of the year, if you could have done this and could have done this, and looking towards the next year and what you could do. But all I know is if you're in Christ this morning, if you've trusted him, if you've believed in him, if you've placed your faith in him, here the grand promise of the result of Christ coming into the world, here the result is for those who have believed, you will never be condemned. That is why Paul said in Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Listen, if you're in Christ and you've come to Christ and you've bowed your knee to Christ, you stand this morning forgiven past tense. He's done all that could be done for you. He wiped that slate clean. He put your sins into the deepest sea. He wiped them out like a thick cloud. He will never bring them up against you ever again. All your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. The reason that he sent his son is in order to save you. And as you come to him by faith and put your trust in him, he wipes out all condemnation against you. Right now, he sees you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He justified you in his name. He declared you righteous. Your name will never be written out from the Lamb's book of life. It could never be erased. He wrote you in there. He wrote you in by his blood. He forgave your sins. It is a wonderful, wonderful promise that the one who believes in him, it says in the scripture, is not judged. Do you see that? Is not judged condemned. It is a glorious, glorious truth. What a joy to know Christ, to know your sins are forgiven, to know right now if something happened in 2016, your salvation is utterly and absolutely secure. Jesus said that no one will snatch you out of my Father's hand. In fact, all that the Father gave to the Son will be redeemed. Faithful is he who began a good work in you who will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, he not only justified you, he sanctified you, he washed you and made you whole. That's why he sent his son. He sent his son not to condemn you. He sent his son into the world for all 7 billion people, not to judge them. He sent his son to save the world and for the ones who believe in him, they are not condemned. 
But it's stated negatively. Look again at the result of his coming. It says, but whoever, verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned. What does it say? Already. In other words, you don't have to wait for final judgment. You are already, and an emphasis on already, already condemned. In fact, look at 336. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, stated positively. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, the Bible speaks of a future judgment that we understand, but it also teaches a present judgment. In fact, we know if we've been in the Scripture at all, we were already condemned at birth. We inherited our sin nature from Adam. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 51, we were conceived in sin. We were born sinners, okay? But there's also a future judgment. Jesus will address that in John chapter 5. When he says, when he speaks of those, he said, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a future judgment, but I think I want to point you to the words here of our Lord that the unbeliever, and that could be you this morning. You're judged as you sit. That's a, it's a phenomenal thought. I mean, if you've not embraced him, the Bible says you're judged already. And, and you might say, well, well, why this judgment, though? Why does, he, why does he condemn people already? Well, look at the text. It says very clearly there why. Because, comma, right, he has not believed, verse 18, in the name of the only, what, Son of God. You've not believed in his name, which is his person. His work. Remember, he came unto his own in 111, and his own received him not. Let me clearly state this. Unbelief in the Scripture is bent at his person. Okay? Jesus said, you know it in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except what? Through me. But when unbelief enters into the heart, it's, it's bent at his person. Jesus, of course, we know from Acts 4.12, there's salvation and no one else. For there is, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here, why are people condemned? They're condemned, verse 18, because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I read an interview this last week about the, the singer Bono. You too. It's probably one of the most popular musicians maybe in the history of rock and roll. I mean, this is a musician. This is a businessman. This is a venture capitalist. And you can go on if you want to look up Bono and see what, what he's done. He's been knighted by Elizabeth II. There's a whole host of things. That's not his real name. Bono is his stage name. His real name is Paul David Hewson, H-E-W-S-O-N. He's from Ireland, specifically from the city of Dublin. But there was an interview, and the interview revealed how many people think about Christ in the world. 
And what's interesting is you catch most interviewers who would hang on the words of rock stars and then heap praise on all their thoughts. This journalist was a little different. He asked Bono whether he agreed that religion is the cause of the most appalling problems in the world, which is an interesting question by itself. Bono answered that it depends on the religion. And Bono went on in his explanation to divide religions between grace and karma. And karma basically is the idea that what goes around comes around, that what we ultimately end up getting and what we deserve, you know, is in one form or another what every religion apart from Christ teaches. Every religion in some ways just teaches karma. But Bono said this in the interview. He said, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. And then he said, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but Bono said, I'm holding out for grace. He said, I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross, that it's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. End of quote. Which is, frankly, don't know exactly where he is, a clear presentation of the gospel from the lips of one of the most popular musicians on the planet. I'll read what he said again. He said, I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins into the cross. It is not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. That's what he told the journalist. You say, how did the journalist respond? Well, the journalist responded and said, quote, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world it's close to lunacy in my view, end of quote. In other words, Bono just gave a description of the gospel to which the interviewer said, that is lunacy in my view. And listen, I, I just want to say this. That particular reporter is not only waiting future condemnation. Listen. He is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you know what's interesting here? If you look down again at verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned. And just as I said, the one who believes is not condemned, believing continually, abiding continually, the language here is the one continuously not believing. You have passed, if you will, into a continuing state of condemnation because you refuse to enter into a continuing state of belief. It's very scary. I mean, the Lord just brings us right down to this. You say, what's going to judge someone? Well, let, let me show you. Look, look over just a few chapters to John chapter 12. Jesus will tell you what will judge people. What will judge you if you've not come to Christ, if that's the case this morning. In John chapter 12, it's an amazing statement by our Lord where he says in 1246 that I have, he says in 1246, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, and the word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. Wow, there it is. The words that Christ has spoken will be what will judge the unbeliever on the last day. Let me, let me just say something real clear to you here. Okay, and I can't, I can't express this enough, okay? But the Bible never allows the unbeliever to blame God for the judgment he will face and even now faces. Never. If you go to hell, you will go to hell because you've not trusted Christ. You will never go to hell because you're not elect, although we would agree that the elect go to heaven, right? But you will go to hell because of what you've done with the person of Christ. You could never find yourself in a place to say, listen, I just don't intellectually grasp it. I just don't intellectually get it. To not believe on the Son of God and to give your whole life to Him is to live in a continual state of unbelief until you bow your knee. So, beloved, God is not to blame for one's eternal separation. You are responsible to believe that God sent His Son into the world. That's what the Scripture is saying. I know He's sovereign in 1 through 10, but here people perish because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I'm thinking of Ezekiel 18, where God said, I have... He says, have I any pleasure in the de- death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that, and, and re- and not rather that he should turn o- from his way and live. So you've got to believe in the Son. You've got to, there's just two places. There's just two roads. You may be in ninth grade, but you need to f- grasp this. You may be in fifth grade, but you need to grasp this. You may be a sixth grader, but what you do with the person of Christ will be the biggest a factor in your life by far. Now, you'll note the condemnation there. Look at 18, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Al Mohler posted this week. It was interesting. Maybe you saw that. By the way, Al Mohler will be in our pulpit here on uh, March 12th. Excuse me, on March 13th have the privilege to hear from him again. But if you follow him, and, and I saw this article not just by him, I saw it even from Christianity Today. There was a statement, did you see this, that was made by a professor of a leading evangelical college. And that leading evangelical college, just so we're not left wondering, is Wheaton College. There's a, state, there's a professor, a woman, at Wheaton College, and she made a statement that was very controversial because in and she's a bible professor in explaining why she intended to wear a traditional muslim you call it a a a hijab h-i-j-a-b that's the traditional muslim head covering and in explaining why she wore that head covering over the holiday season she said it was to symbolize her solidarity with her muslim neighbors and the professor asserted that christians And Muslims worship the same God. It's interesting. They suspended her, at least momentarily. 
But they said that they, we worship the same God. Other people have made this statement, and the answer to that question depends on, upon a distinctly Christian and clearly biblical answer to yet another question. And here's the other question, is can anyone truly worship the Father while rejecting the Son? That's really the question. I mean, Jesus himself settled the question when he responded to Jewish leaders who confronted him after he said, I am the light of the world. And when they denied him, Jesus said, if you knew me, you would also know my, what? Father. In fact, later in John chapter 8, Jesus used the strongest language in his earthly ministry in stating, in stating that to deny him is to deny his Father. You've got to believe in the person of Christ. Look over at 1 John just for a moment before we go to the Lord's table. In 1 John, you remember we, when we studied that early on when I first got here, it says there, for in, and I'm in 1 John 5 verse 9, if you're there, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So, beloved, there you have it. The purpose of our Lord's coming divides mankind into just two groups. There's believers and there's unbelievers And you must choose. You say, Scott, I thought you were a Calvinist. I am. You must choose. So how do you explain that? I don't know if I can explain that. You must believe. Okay? You say, well, why do people not believe? Go back to John 3. I'll show you why they don't believe. It says in verse 19, for this is the judgment, 319, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why people don't believe. They love the darkness rather than the light. But this morning, you must believe. You could say with Robert Frost, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. Oh, listen, you're going to have decisions in business, decisions in relationship, decisions in athletics, decisions at school, decisions for spouse, all those things, I get that. But that's what won't won't make all the difference. What will make all the difference is what you do with the person of Christ. In fact, Moses put it this way. He said in Deuteronomy 30, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. He said, so choose life in order that you may live. I would say to you, choose Christ even this morning. Choose Him. Believe on Him. Joshua said to the nation of Israel, choose for yourselves today who you will serve, whether the God of your fathers, whom they served, or then he listed a plethora of false gods. He said, but as for me and my house, we will serve who? The Lord. What have you chosen to do? Jeremiah said in 21.8, thus says the Lord, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. I would say to you that I've set before you the way of life and death this morning. That my words, according to Peter, are according to the oracle of God. 
And if you stand before God, you will give an account for what you're hearing today. In fact, they will condemn you today if you don't place your faith in Christ. Remember when Elijah said to the nation, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Listen, if the Lord is God, then I would say to you, follow him. Listen, some of you might say, wow, it's just this or that. Yeah, it's just this or that. But you might be missing the whole point of John chapter 3, that he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that just as the brazen serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too, verse 14, the Son of Man would be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's done everything that he can do, and he's bringing you to a fork in the road. In fact, I would be reminiscent if I didn't say, I beg you to come to Christ. I beg you to bow your knee this morning and come to Christ. I beg you to give away your pornography or give away your cherished sin or give away the sin that only you and maybe the Lord knows about and give your life to Jesus Christ and come all to him today. I plead with you to come to Christ. It may be the last message you may ever hear. You may go from this auditorium and never come back to the truth. You say, well, why would I do that? Because some people love darkness rather than they love light. And you may be here this morning and you needed to hear this. But listen, I'm encouraging you to choose life. When you choose Christ, he will give you eternal life. But the one who actively does not choose Christ or comes back for another day or another season, that other day, that other season may not come. You know, they say in D.L. Moody's life that one time he was preaching on the love of God in John chapter 3, 3. And he said, you come back next week and hear the message that I'll bear on John 3.16 as the second part. And as soon as he prayed amen, somebody shouted from the balcony and said, fire. And a fire broke out in the great hall. Fire spread quickly. The fire killed thousands in his congregation. And Moody just went on to weep for weeks because he had never given the offer of the gospel. Listen, I'm giving you the offer of the gospel. I'm telling you that God sent his son in the world not to judge you, not to condemn you, but that you would be saved. But if you don't believe and you continue to not believe, you will be judged not just in the future. You're already under judgment right now. I mean, I don't know another way to say that. Another, maybe if I could just say it it, with my own life, and maybe I've shared this with you before, I always felt like I was running from God when I was 14. Always. Always. He was after me. You ever, you, you ever hear that expression, the hound of heaven? Man, I was just running. And, and I felt like every time I ran, he would catch up with me. And I'd be like, oh, you know. You know, my mom said, don't do that. And my dad said, don't. And I, I was doing what they told me not to do. And I just was, every time I tried to run away from him, I just could never run from him. And I felt like he had the proverbial, um, it's bad theology though. He had the proverbial scope on me, the the hunter's scope, and that he had me kind of dialed into the crosshair, and everywhere I went, the middle of the crosshair, the red dot was on me, until one day I realized it wasn't just on me. The trigger was already pulled. I was dead. I was dead going downstream like a dead fish going down. The trigger was already pulled. If I thought I was in the crosshair, my theology was wrong. I was already condemned because I was shaking my fist in the face of God as a 14-year-old man because I didn't want to give him first place in my life. 
You say, well, Scott, how can a 14-year-old do that? I don't know. That's how I did it. I didn't want God to tell me what to do, where to go, who to hang out with, and who to be with. And, and I just was running from him. And every time I ran, the red dot was just, the, it, was, it was closing in on me until I just finally at 14 realized I needed to yield my life to Jesus Christ. And I went in, got down on my knees, and God wonderfully, wonderfully saved me, and I began to live. But until that day, I was running from him. And I just say, you may be like me. <laughs> you may be like me, and I'm telling you, he's on you. He's, but listen, you're condemned already. You're not waiting for judgment. You're judged right now. And I, I preach this with a sense of urgency to you that you would give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.